We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Joel Hudson. I'm the worship pastor here at our Rolling Hills Nashville campus. We're in our series, A Beautiful Life, where we've been walking through the book of 1 John. As we finish out the third chapter of 1 John, we'll be continuing to explore and learn about the theme of legacy and what that means for you and me. And now, here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. Okay, good deal. I almost forgot to turn that back on because, you know, sometimes you turn it off. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Happy Mother's Day. Um, We do want to take a moment just to kind of celebrate the goodness of God and all the blessings that go along with that. And so we're thrilled that you're here today. Um, I'll tell a quick story, and I don't say this just as a—let me preface it by saying— those of you who know me well um, understand that I have no bragging rights whatsoever when it comes to athletic ability. And so when I tell a story about my kid being halfway coordinated and decent at a sport, it's not to be that dad that's just bragging. It's a sermon illustration, so you have to follow it all the way through. So we have been spending about as many clear sky days as possible because they have been few and far between at the baseball field this season, all right? And we've had, we've literally played about as many makeup games as we have regular season games because of all the rain that we've had. But as we've had moments to be out there on the ball field, we've really, really enjoyed ourselves. Simon playing on an eight, nine-year-old rookie baseball team for West Nashville. And it's been really, he's a Cardinal, so go Cards, we're excited about this. So literally almost, and I say this, like, and not because I understand mathematics or how to do any sort of batting average at all, but he's, lit- he's gotta have a good one because every time he gets up to bat, he literally hits the ball, which is a great thing. Like, I'm super excited and I don't say that to again, I'm just, listen, you got to follow the story. But it's not a powerful hit. It's typically just a good, solid base hit. And because of where he hits it, or because of some errors on the field, he literally makes it to first base almost every, I would dare say like 95% of the time, he's on first base. Sometimes a kid will get up after him that will have a good hit, and he'll get to run to second. Sometimes another kid will come up after that that will advance him to third, but very rarely, in fact, for the first time two weekends ago, was he actually able to score, and he's longed for this. He's longed to score a point the whole season, and he's literally been ready, but literally, as you can imagine, by the time two or three more batters come after him in the lineup, there are three outs, and so they have to change, and he never makes it home. Well, this time, he's on third. He got a single, he's been batted around a second, he's been batted around a third. There's literally only one out. The chances are good at this point, that somebody's going to get up with one more base hit, and he's going to get to score. I looked over at Susan, oh, I really hope he gets to score. It would just be a big moment. So next batter gets up, good grounder, makes it to first. This kid, Simon, comes home, and he scores. And you can see it on his face. He's thrilled that he has scored a run for his team. We're making our way back to the car. We don't even get there. The sisters did not attend that game. And he says, did you tell sisters that I got a home run? It's in your notes this morning. And I had to explain to him that day, a home run is different than running home. But they both score a point. 
If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, or that you'll turn to the screen or follow along in your notes, or you can pull it up on an app in some sort of magical technological way. We're in 1 John chapter 3 today, starting in verse 11. And you may not get past the heading because you're looking at it, and it was like, oh, this heading in my Bible says, more on love and hate, right? So you know, oh, this is going to be a way to pick a Mother's Day message, Nick Allen. You picked a section in the Bible that says more on love and hate. Some of you are going to take that to mean more than it does. Please don't. Okay. But it's a good passage of scripture, and so we're going to dive in as we continue a series that's literally called A Beautiful Life. And, and, and what does that mean for us today, uh, thousands of years after these words were written, to understand what it means to live a, a life well? It says this in First John chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, we should love one another. And I think you can do that. And I think people would agree that we can literally make a case that right from the beginning, start to finish in this scripture, although there are lots of detours and lots of sidetracks and lots of stories that would be contrary to that moment. If you literally look down through the pages of scripture, start to finish, not just the gospels and Jesus, but right at the beginning of Genesis and all the way fast forward through the end of Revelation, we're nearing the end right now in 1 John, that somehow or another you can make a case that this whole thing has always been and will always be ultimately about love. And that's the message that John wants to make sure that his audience and that his listeners, and I dare say that's the message that we at Rolling Hills want to make sure that our audience and that our listeners don't miss, that somehow or another this is and has always been about love. And then he says this, do not be like Cain. Oh, we really are going back to the beginning. Whoa. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. You know this story. It says, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You know that story? It's in the book of Genesis. Like, like Adam and Eve planted in the garden, have incredible fellowship with God. They walk with him and they talk with him and they have this incredible relationship. And then of course the evil one comes in and he tempts Eve and then she passes it off to Adam and somehow or another sin enters the garden and there's an ingrate, a great incredible fall and everything is now cursed because of it. Well in Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew Eve, which is just a really G-rated Bible way of saying intimacy. Adam knew her and they conceived and she had kids sons named Cain and Abel. And you learn out of the gate that sin crept up in Cain's heart and that he did not like his brother. There was an occasion where they brought forth an offering to God and Cain was a farmer. He cultivated the ground and you know the ground was cursed and that work was difficult because of the fall of man. And so he, after great labor, was able to present to God some of the fruits of his garden. He just planted like, hey God, here's some zucchini. And then Abel, uh, conversely, was a, a sheep herder. He was a, a livestock guy. And so he brought to God a fatty portion of the firstborn lamb in his flock. And that God did not receive well the offering that Cain brought, but the offering that Abel brought, he blessed, and that only made the jealousy grow more. So much so, you can fast forward to Genesis chapter 4. He calls his brother out, takes him into the woods, and literally takes him out. His brother dies, and if you read the story carefully, what you understand is that Abel doesn't really have a big role doesn't have this ongoing conversation or dialogue with God. He doesn't have lines for his brother. There's really only a couple of verses about him before he dies. And yet scripture says right there in Genesis chapter 4 that his blood cried out from the ground. That the blood of Abel cried out for justice. And then you fast forward through scripture and when he's mentioned again, because he doesn't have a big role in this overall story, you get to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 and about him it says this, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. How? It's his faith 
Somehow or another, the blood of Abel cried out for justice, and the faith of Abel spoke long after he himself was dead. John goes on to write, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. Hey, people who've declared faith in Jesus, listen, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that the world is so mean to us. Oh my goodness, I can't believe that people don't like us. Oh my goodness, I cannot believe that people disagree with us. Do not be shocked, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister, hence the Cain story, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone, this is, you want to talk about laying down your life for brothers and sisters? If anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John's words, not mine. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and that we have set our hearts at rest. Word means peace in his presence. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, today we thank you for the reading and the hearing of your word and we know that it is living and speaks to us. And so Father, our, our prayer today as we read it and study it and digest it is that we would be people who live our lives according to it. And that in some way, you would use the power of your word to change us from the inside out and make us better representatives of Jesus out in the world that we live. Because it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. You know, a home run is different than running home. We just, we plain get things wrong sometimes. But of all the things in life, it's in your notes this morning, of all the things in life that we were to get right or to get wrong, love is the most crucial. He, he says that to us. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We must love each other. And if you look through scripture and you understand right from the beginning that God was a God of love and that he had a design for love in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's literally the most important Jewish command. It's the Shema. It says, hear, O Israel. Listen, listen up, Israel. The Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one. And then, and then God said, Moses spoke to the people. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right after the most important confession of faith came the most important command in faith that we would love God. You read Leviticus chapter 18 and it talks a little bit about murder and revenge. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, Cain, against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And these two commands stood out of the 613 commands that God gave Israel in the Old Testament wanderings all the way through the end of the Old Testament when the Pharisees had come and piled thousands and thousands of pseudo commands on top of it. When a, a young expert in the law, an attorney in the religious faith, a Pharisee, somebody who was trying to trap Jesus by his question, comes to him and asks him, hey, Jesus, why don't you sum it up for us? Why don't you tell me what the most important command is? Jesus didn't make up something on the spot. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter six, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your and then Jesus gave him a bonus. He didn't ask for it, but he said, I'll go ahead and tell you the second one too. The second one is this, Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he says, all the law, all the prophets, everything that we have in scripture, everything that you believe in in your life hangs on these two commands. Of all the things in life that we get right or wrong, love is the most crucial. The Apostle Paul, who wrote more of our New Testament than not, he, of course, being a founding father of our faith, literally communicates the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, literally, if you're the best person on the planet, like he's literally ascribing to the people things that they would have held of higher value than anything else. Look, this guy knows prophecy. This guy understands mysteries. This guy absolutely has all knowledge. And he has a faith that can move mountains. You find me somebody then better than that. And Paul says, that guy right there, the one who can prophesy, the one who understands all mysteries, the one who can communicate with all knowledge, the one whose faith can move a mountain. If he has not love, nothing. Love matters more than all those things. So what if saying words of love is different than doing actions of love? And somehow, what if having love is different than living love? What if we get it wrong? John explains to his people, it's crucial. This is why. Love is the litmus. Don't ask me a lot of questions about this because I don't understand it. I just understand that it's some kind of scientific thing between acids and bases where if you put some paper in something, it's going to turn a color or not turn a color, and that just tells you what it is. Like, this is it. When you talk about a test, when you talk about an indicator, when you talk about something showing its true colors, love is the litmus. Love is the litmus. Love is the barometer of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the problem with, the problem with love being the litmus test, the problem with love being the barometer of the, the measurement, the, the, the expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is that we would rather it be piety. We would. Like we would often somehow want it to be piety. Like I would, I would rather than expressions of love out in the world, particularly with people who are hard to love, I would rather it just be piety because I got that. You talk about devotion, I go to church every week. Y'all, I'm here like every week. I only get two Sundays off a year. Seriously, like I'm here all the time and I'm like here every day. Like you talk about piety, you talk about devotion, how religious can we be? Wouldn't it be easier if we could just put the dividing line and be like, oh, here's the super religious people and here's the really unreligious people. These are the ones who have Jesus in these. That's such a clear line, right? Often in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ rather than follow the Bible's instructions that love is the litmus, we would rather it be piety. Or how about propriety? Like, can a person just be moral? Can a, can a person just make really good choices and exhibit their Christianity with their behavior, like it's okay, it's okay to say that the measurement is love, but when I'm looking into your life and you're looking into mine, aren't we looking at one another's behaviors? Aren't we looking at one another's lifestyles and, and making a clear judgment based on that as to whether or not we believe a person has faith in Jesus Christ? You know, when you look at mine, I want you to understand, wow, man, there's a guy that's done, he, he's done a lot, he's super faithful, and um, makes wise choices, he must be a Christ follower. And then when you look at somebody else's life, you're like, whoa, they make some really unwise choices. Look at their life, so sloppy. So like, they're just really, they're really, they must not be, uh, we would rather 
look at a person's piety or, or their moral behavior and let that be the barometer that we use to determine whether or not someone is in Jesus Christ when Scripture is so different. And sometimes this is the hard part. Sometimes we would rather it just be an even more external characteristic. Grace. Ethnicity. Or even nationality. How about just American? Like, wouldn't it just be easier if we could just say, oh, well, this is a Christian nation and all the people in it must be Christians? As opposed to all the other places and oh, at some crazy world out there, they, they must not be Christians? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't we, in our judgment, like it better if there was some other barometer, but there's not, love's the litmus. And it, it, it bears witness to our salvation it bears witness to a person's salvation and their understanding of grace and ultimately Jesus. It says in verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life. This is how we know. Like you want an answer? This is how we know. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. I spent years of my ministry career in student ministry and you find a bunch of teenagers who grew up in the life of the church, many of them, and they, they went to whatever was called Sunday school and they went to whatever was called vacation Bible school and they went to Bible drill and they went to camp and then they get to their teenage years and they encounter some sort of crisis of faith where the world that they now live in doesn't match the world that they grew up in and there's a crisis over how you can really believe in these words and somehow or another they find themselves having a conversation with a youth pastor like me and it's all about assurance. Well, Pastor Nick, I, I, prayed some, I prayed some words and I, 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 I walked an aisle and I got dunked into some water and, and I, I think I became a Christian, but now the world is really hard, so I must not be one. And, and they need to have a conversation about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be assured in their faith. But here's the deal. Assurance isn't just some internal feeling of certainty. That's what we want it to be. We want it to be that thing that helps us go to bed at night and lay our head on our pillow and think that somehow inside of me, I have a feeling that Jesus is real, so I must be good. Check mark. Assurance isn't just internal certainty. It's tangible, self-sacrificing service. This is how we know what love is. This is the picture of it. You want to define love for the world. You want to define love for yourself. You want to dip into the solution with the litmus paper, and I don't understand that illustration anymore, but somehow or another, you want to know what the indication is that a person is in Jesus Christ. This is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He sacrificed himself we ought to sacrifice ourselves. And so the hallmark of love is sacrifice. That means it costs something. That means we spend something. That means it, it, it hurts in some way. It's a sacrifice. As many conversations as I had with teenagers about assurance, when you, when you transition to adult ministry, it's all about depth. The people that are trying to figure out whether or not they're faithful, the people that are trying to figure out whether or not a church is good are the ones that want to come and have a conversation with you. Pastor Nick, you know, I just need to, I need to try a different church. I need to try a different Bible study. I need to try a different group. I need to try a different um, teacher. I need to try a different podcast because I just want to go deeper. And, and what they really are saying, smokescreen alert, is I want more vocabulary words. 
I want more biblical languages. I want more historical facts. I want more archaeological congruences. I want more general knowledge about what this word says. But the real answer is, you don't go any deeper than the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. You want to go deeper? Andy Stanley says, get yourself some foster kids. <laughs> don't get a concordance. Get a foster kid. And we'll talk about the depth of love that is required. Love is sacrifice. Jesus laid his life down, so we ought to lay our lives down. John writes, dear children, he's not talking to children. He's talking about like people that are, he's old at this point, so I guess he is talking to children. He's saying, hey, dear children, people that are young in faith, people that need to understand truth, let me tell you this, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. More than words to say how I feel. You know that song? More than words, I, I. Y'all know that. <laughs> We've always known that it was more than words, right? Louis Giggly, I wrote a book, and it's called The Air I Breathe, and it's all about the idea of worship and how we approach God, and in it, he asks a whole series of questions. I'll rephrase some of those this morning. Moms, because, you know, it's Mother's Day. What do you want? Do you want kids who, who, who tell you that you're nice and that they love you or ones who do their chores? Both. <laughs> Wives, what do you want? Do you want husbands who, who, who tell you all the time that you're amazing and that you're gorgeous or ones that buy you gifts and take you on trips and let you have the day off? Both. What do you want? Somebody that just tells you that you're great or... or by their actions of service, they express love to you in a tangible way. He says that God is absolutely no different, that God isn't just honored by words alone. Like any of us, he's moved by words that are authenticated by actions. When it comes to worship, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. When it comes to worship, it's the total package that counts. What you say, how you say it, and whether or not you mean it. He says this, our words mean the most when they're amplified by every area of our lives. Love is and has always been more than words. The love that you and I like to receive, more than words. The love that we are called to give, more than words. Ultimately, when it comes to the real definition of love and God's definition of love and what we have to hang our hat on as the definition of real love, that it has to be about sacrifice. I always find it really interesting to express on Mother's Day, first of all, we have to acknowledge the fact that Mother's Day is hard for people because there are those who have lost their mothers this year. Um, I learned of just one young lady yesterday in our congregation um, recent college grad in the last, I don't know, three to five years, um, young adult, single, lives here in town, works at Vanderbilt. Her mother passed away this weekend. And so imagine Mother's Day today for her. Uh, and so we acknowledge the fact that there are those who've lost mothers. Um, there are um, women who long to be mothers. Um, and we understand, or, or, or we at least think we understand what it means to be a person who's, who's in the waiting for what God might have next. There's mothers in the room who've, who've, who've really 
paid the ultimate sacrifice by losing their own children. And so we acknowledge the fact that Mother's Day is a challenging day, that Mother's Day can be a difficult day for many, but I love to express the truth of the history of Mother's Day. That, 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 that in the 1860s, right around the time of the Civil War, that there was a woman who campaigned for Mother's Work Days. And Mother's Day for her wasn't a day to be honored. It wasn't a day to get a pedicure. It wasn't a day to get flowers. It wasn't a day to not have to cook and do any work. It was actually a day to go out and do more work on the front lines of a battlefield to improve the conditions of your sons who had gone to war because they couldn't stand the idea. Like, we can stomach our kids giving up their lives for something that they believe in, but we can't stand them going off and just getting sick or not having enough to eat. So let's organize ourselves and actually work. And then those same mothers got together and they worked for reconciliation between the North and the South once the was over, and they were a linchpin in making that happen. Mother's Day and its originality by the people who campaigned for it wasn't about the celebration of moms. It was about the unity of moms working even harder and being even more sacrificial for their kids. That woman passed away, and her daughter ended up taking on the mantle and campaigning nationally for Mother's Day to be a nationally recognized holiday in the United States. And when Woodrow Wilson declared it so, it immediately became a commercial holiday. So the same woman who had campaigned, yes, let's have Mother's Day went to her deathbed campaigning, please get rid of Mother's Day because this isn't what it's about. It's about moms making sacrifices. It's the herald of what they had always been. Love is never about, oh, the flowers and the words and the adornment and the adoration of what we receive. It's ultimately about the sacrifices that we make. And if we want to know God, then we have to walk with Jesus. And if we want to walk with Jesus, we have to live a life of love. It's in your notes. To know God and walk with Jesus is to love. How do we love? Well, we start with loving God. John Piper, I love this quote. He says, if we love God most, we will love others best. And the challenge about loving others best is that we know we get it wrong. I made a home run. No, you didn't. You got a base hit. We get it wrong. And there will be moments in your life, there already are and have been moments in your life, there are moments today when you're going to get love wrong. And they, the outside world, people on this planet will attempt in their pride to hold you accountable for your failures in such a way that when you mess up, they can turn it around and somehow blame it on Jesus. And that, my friends, is when you get to dig deep and you get to love more, and you get to communicate even better knowing that Jesus doesn't love you because you get it right. Jesus loves you even though you get it wrong. Jesus loves you because you're his. God doesn't love us because we love others. We love others because God loves us. Simon, I don't need home runs. I don't even need base hits. My love's not based on that. There's a pastor in town. I like to read his words a lot, and he's got a couple of books out. His name is Scott Sauls, and he writes this. While it is fair to call out Christians for hypocrisy, because we need to do better. It's fair to call out Christians for hypocrisy. The hypocrisy, he says, in no way negates Christianity, but rather only serves to establish it. In the same way that it would make zero sense to call Beethoven a substandard composer because a six-year-old plays one of his pieces sloppily and out of tune at a piano recital. 
it makes zero sense to call Jesus a substandard savior because his followers imitate him poorly. Get it? Just like it makes no sense to call Beethoven a substandard composer because you and I can't play him well, it makes zero sense to call Jesus a substandard savior because you and I don't live him well. And yet, we don't change Beethoven in order to accommodate the weak six-year-old player. So we're not gonna change this word and we're not gonna change this definition in order to accommodate a weak, messed up world. We're gonna continue to live out the lives of love that God has called us to live. Cain and Abel, I, I grew up thinking that somehow Cain had only presented to God the, the worst of his vegetables, the worst of his garden. But some scholars believe that the way that the scriptures are portrayed, he actually presented to God the very best. Instead of just saying, hey God, here's some squash. He's literally giving him the, what he had. Like here's, here's all of this. Here's all of this that I've worked for. Here's all of this that looks so good. Here's all of this that tastes so amazing. I'm definitely gonna give you more than him and Abel presents to God literally the fatty portion of a tiny little lamb. Which one do you think should have been better? And yet it was Abel's offering, propitiated sin, blood that was shed, wasn't even his. And yet he gave that to God and it made him righteous. That foreshadowing of the religious system the fact that all of our work and all of our labor matters nothing, and it's the blood of another that makes us his. The picture of those practices and what it gave to us, our offering is different than his. Running home is different than a home run. Both count, but one is way more exciting. John 14, Jesus says these words, if you love me, keep my commands. Well, what commands? Well, John says it for us again. This is his command. Okay, wait, now we're getting to it. If we love him, we're going to keep his commands. This is it. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. That word believe is the idea of conviction. That word believe is the idea of put someone's trust in. It, it's a picture of faith. It's the Greek word pistuo. It's to literally put all your eggs in that basket. First John chapter 2, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this. But if anyone obeys his word, okay, that's great. We're, we're keeping his commands. Love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know. Here's the litmus test. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Some of your Bible translations are going to say, whoever claims to live in him will walk as Jesus walked. It's the word peripateo, and it literally means the same thing in both occasions. It's, it's to make progress. It's to move forward. It's to take ground. It's to seize an opportunity, but it's also to regulate your life and to conduct oneself. And basically, it's how you live. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, if we live... Some of your Bible translations say walk by faith, not by sight. Faith, it's that word belief. What we walk in is ultimately what we believe. How we live love is based on what we believe love to be. How we live love 
is always going to be based on what you believe love to be. So if you believe love is a feeling, you're going to live out your feelings. <laughs> if you believe love is flowery words, you're going to use flowery words. If you believe love is expressions of gifts, and we'll just go to all this five, if you, if you believe love is T-I-M-E, then you're just going to spend all your, love is sacrifice. That's what this definition is. And so how are you going to live a life of sacrifice that is for the good of others? Sacrificial love of Jesus is the only definition of love that we need, and it's the greatest barometer of whether or not God's love is truly in us. Just like Abel, our life speaks now, and it will speak after the fact, too, on whether or not we lived lives of love. Are we trying to earn God's favor and beat the next guy? Oh, our religion is better. Our denomination is better. My faith practices are, my songs are better. My, like, are we just trying to out the next guy? Or are we making a sacrificial effort of faith in order to tell God that we are so thankful for the love that we have experienced in God? Love, according to the world, is always going to be different than love according to this word. Rosario Butterfield is a college professor and a PhD and a theologian and a person who's done and written incredible and amazing things, but she spent the majority of her adult life an antagonistic atheist, not willing to accept God's love or believe a word from this book, largely because of the ways that she had experienced people in the church. I spent the early part of my ministry career understanding the mind of the unchurched and all the books that you can read, and several of them kind of state that there's a lot of different types of unchurched people in the world, unbelievers in the world, and we, 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 we wrongly assume sometimes that all the unbelievers in the world are just really angry, antagonistic atheists who, who are ready to combat us about our scriptures when the truth of the matter is that most of the unbelievers or the unchurched in the world are just uninformed about the gospel. They still need a Bible in their language. They still need a missionary to come to their community. They just need information, the story of Jesus to come and be compelled and understand that God loves them and sacrificed his own son for him. So the uninformed, the people that just don't know the gospel story, Romans chapter 10, how will they know unless somebody tells them? Well, how will somebody tell them unless that they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? They just need gospel information. There's another group it is the antagonistic group, the people that have been hurt, the people that have been put off by possibly well-meaning Christians who didn't live out this love well. And those people don't just need information. In fact, many of them have all of the information. In fact, many of them know more information than you and I. They need a demonstration. They need a practical demonstration that Jesus really is who this book says he is and that his followers really can be who his followers are supposed to be. They need a demonstration of God's love. Probably a very small percentage of people that you encounter that are unchurched are really and truly closed to the gospel. And we don't just dust our feet off and move to another direction based on them. What we know they need is not just a demonstration. They need cultivation, which is one demonstration after another over time. They need Marty to be loving and Christ-like. And then they need Rachel to be loving and Christ-like. They need Nora Blake to be loving. They need one person after another over time to be lovingly Christ-like in order to have a demonstration of who Jesus is cultivated in their life to where 
they are willing to somehow put their faith and trust and believe in him. That was Rosaria Butterfield when a pastor moved next door and lovingly over a period of years and over intense hospitality and generosity, she finally came to know that the Jesus they believed in had to be true. And she submitted her life to his authority and became a follower of Jesus Christ. And now she writes for the church and teaches us what it's like to be followers of Jesus. She says this, woe to us when we find ourselves more merciful than God. Woe to us when we look around this world and we find its definition of love, its definition of tolerance, its definition of peace, its definition of faith more worthy than his. Because this is the real deal. This is what we hang our hats on. And this is what we seek to align our lives with. Sometimes, it doesn't happen often for eight and nine-year-olds, a kid will get up and hit it all the way to the back of the fence and he'll round first and the coach is there going, hey, go to second, go to second. And when he rounds second, there's the third base coach saying, hey, come on, come on, come on. And he's not saying slide or get in the dirt. He's not saying stop. He's saying, hey, you can go all the way. And he's sending that kid home. There are moments, and we've had like one or two our season where, not by error, but just a really good hit. Some kid has gotten a home run. It's worth one point. That kid hitting the ball and running all the bases. Now maybe there were others on the, who cares? That kid got one point. Base hit, make it to first, and just wait. Somebody hits you on to second, and you just wait. Somebody hits you to third, and you just wait. And then they get the cue that it's time to go home. How much is that? One point. Sometimes by our loving demonstrations in the world's We go out there and we hit a home run. But church, I just want to tell you, base hits are really good. So if you can just go out there and love someone in such a way that shows them Jesus, just get on base and then wait. And then the next day, get on base and then wait. A home run is different than running home, but they're both runs. And the way we go out this world and love others with the love of Jesus, cultivating those relationships in a sacrificial way and demonstrating the goodness of God, it counts. And that's what this word teaches us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day and this time and this opportunity to open your word and to dive into your love. And it's our prayer today that for anyone in this room who's still on the fence, anyone who still has doubts, anyone who still has questions, that they would understand that it's not about them. It's not about their work. It's not about their effort. It's not about the offering that they bring. It's only ever about the faith that they present. Jesus, I'll believe in you. Jesus, because I know I need you. Maybe today is the day where they will experience that kind of forgiveness and that kind of love, that kind of generosity for the first time. For the rest of us, God, while we're sitting around trying to compare offerings with others, may you remind us that it's not about what we bring, but it's about who you are and who you declare us to be. And that it's because you love us that we get to go out and live lives of love towards others. And so Jesus, would you help us to get on base? 
one kind, sacrificial, loving, generous act after another, would you help us to show this world who Jesus is? It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways that you can connect. We're thankful for you.